0: now hear the word of God from Isaiah 29 and 31 and Matthew's gospel chapter 23. Isaiah 29. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. But this is what the Lord has told me. When a strong young lion stands growling over a sheep that is killed, it is not frightened by the shouts and noise of a whole army of shepherds. In the same way, the Lord of heaven's armies will come down and fight on Mount Zion, The Lord of heaven's armies will hover over Jerusalem and protect it like a bird protecting its nest. He will defend and save the city. He will pass over it and rescue it. Though you are such wicked rebels, my people, come and return to the Lord. I know the glorious day will come when each of you will throw away the gold idols and silver images your sinful hands have made. Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to remove them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, no, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. From the the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem... You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God.
1: Well, wow. Jesus is coming down hard on the Pharisees. Um, we're teaching through Matthew and Isaiah together. And if you notice, if you look right now on the screen, it says Isaiah 28 to 34 and Matthew 23. You know me and my pattern. I could have just, I didn't have us read all of Isaiah 28 through 34, all the woes. And, uh, but you get the point. So I'm just going to jump right in. Who are the Pharisees? Why is J- Jesus so angry with them? And what can we learn from Jesus' teaching here? I'm just going to start because Jesus is obviously dealing with the Pharisees. Um, are the Pharisees the legalists that we hear about that thought they could earn God's reward through their, you know, good works or are they this religious elite, often rich, um, group of unjust, merciless, and corrupt hypocrites? I've heard both, you know, growing up in the church. There's a song, a kid's song. I don't know if you sang it growing up. It says, I just want to be a sheep. ba ba ba. Anybody know that one? Just want to be a sheep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I just want to be a sheep. ba ba ba. And then it says, I don't want to be a goat. Nope. I don't want to be a goat. Nope. Haven't got any hope. Nope. And this is obviously the contrast between the sheep and the goats, the teaching of Jesus. Then it goes on. It says, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be a hypocrite because they're not hip with it. Oh, no. Oh, oh. (laughs) They're not hip. You know, they have to use the word. So, you know, you don't want to. And in the notes on there, I got this off a children's website. It says, try to sing that. Say, you want to be? You don't want to be? Or what do you want to be? You want to be the, the sheep. Then it goes on. It says, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. I don't want to be a Pharisee. (laughs) But you want to be a sheep. You go back to the sheep part. And then in a sad voice, you say, I don't want to be a a Sadducee. I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so sad, you see. I don't want to be a Sadducee. As someone who has been in church my whole life, I've heard a lot of thoughts and opinions on the Pharisees and how we are to interpret Jesus' interaction with them into our modern context. Actually, it's pretty common when you disagree with someone, you just call them a Pharisee, right? I think in the outside of the church, if you disagree with someone, they're a Nazi, you know, if the argument gets heated, right? If the argument gets heated online, eventually it gets to that. I think in the church... Everybody, we want to be on the right side and we want to make sure that, you know, we, sometimes, not all the time, we get into camps. So there's, there's an idea of what a Pharisee is and we know we don't want to be one. We know that Jesus is very angry toward them. Um, and what we've been taught, at least what I've been taught, there's a lot of commonality, but there's also some inconsistencies. Um, and I think I've even heard people say the Pharisees got a bad rap. You know, but then I read passages like the one we read this morning, and I'm like, "Wow, you know, what are we to think of the Pharisees, and how are we to engage? How do we engage them as we approach the biblical text?" The term Pharisee shows up 98 times in the New Testament, 98 times, 90 times in the Gospels, seven times in Acts, and once in the New Testament letters. One time, and the New Testament letters are kind of how we flesh out the Gospels. And the only time it's referred to the term Pharisees is when Paul's describing his former life in Philippians. So most of what we got is the engagement of Jesus with the Pharisees and the disciples with the Pharisees and the early church, Peter, James, John, and their engagement with the Pharisees in Acts. So I'm going to, instead of me trying to explain it, I'm just going to read a long definition by scholar Tom Wright about who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees were an official but powerful Jewish pressure group through most of the first centuries B.C. and A.D. Largely lay led, including some priests, their aim was to purify Israel through intensified observances of the Jewish law, the Torah. Developing their own traditions about the precise meaning and application of scripture, their own patterns of prayer and other devotions, and their own calculations of national hope. Though not all legal experts were Pharisees, most Pharisees were legal experts. They affected a democratization of Israel's life since, for them, the study and practice of Torah was equivalent to worshiping in the temple. Though they were adamant in pressing their own rules for the temple liturgy on an unwilling and often Sadduceean. There's two groups, the priesthood. There's this other group, and we'll talk about them in a second. This enabled them to survive AD 70. That's when the temple was destroyed. So the the group of the Pharisees actually is one of the few sects of these leaders in Israel that survives after the temple is destroyed. Merging into the early rabbinic movement to develop new ways forward. Politically, they stood up for ancestral traditions and were at the forefront of various movements of revolt against both pagan overlordship, the Romans, and compromised Jewish leaders, Herod. By Jesus' day, there were two distinct schools, the stricter one, the Shammai, more inclined toward armed revolt, some of these were the Zealots you heard about. And then the, the more lenient one, the Hillel, was ready to live and let live. Jesus' debates with the Pharisees are at least as much a matter of agenda and policy. Jesus strongly opposed their separate, separatist nationalism as about details of theology and piety. Saul of Tarsus was a fervent right-wing Pharisee, presumably a Shammaite under his before his conversion After the disastrous war Between the Romans And when the temple gets destroyed These schools of Hillel and Shammai Continued a bitter debate On appropriate policy So that's the Pharisees And at some point Or some of you might be wondering What's the I don't even know how to say it Phylacteries Let's put it up What is this It says it in the, you know, in the Bible So what is it Any guess It sounds like a medical term Right I don't know all right, let's let's look and see. It's it's a box that can be worn on your head or your arm that has little tiny scrolls of part of the the uh, Torah, like maybe the Ten Commandments or little little tiny Hebrew written in little scrolls that you put in the box and you wear it on your head or your arm. You know, there's, in in essence, it's it's just a way for them to um, help. You know, so tools aren't bad, but they. Here's an actual modern Jewish person in Israel with wearing one. Um, so that's, that's what that is. So that's the Pharisees. Uh, next group, the Sadducees. Again, same scholar. By Jesus' day, the Sadducees were the aristocracy of Judaism, possibly tracing their origins to the family of Zadok, David's high priest. Based in Jerusalem, including most of the leading priestly families, they had their own traditions and attempted to resist the pressure of the Pharisees to conform to theirs. So there's kind of these two groups. Now, if you notice, both the groups want to kill Jesus, so they, they actually unify around something. They claimed to rely on the Pentateuch, only on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and denied the doctrine of a future life, particularly of the resurrection and other ideas associated with it, presumably because of the encouragement of such beliefs gave to revolutionary movements. No writings from the Sadducees have survived, unless one of the apocryphal books is comes from one of them. The Sadducees themselves did not survive the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple in AD 70. Then there's another group called the scribes, and this is interesting. I didn't know. I didn't. I, I didn't know how to put all these together. So I'm going re- to le- learn about the scribes. In a world where many could not write or write very well, a trained class of writers, the scribes, performed performed the important function of drawing up contracts for business, marriage, etc. Many scribes would thus be legal experts and quite possibly Pharisees, though being a scribe was compatible with various political and religious standpoints. The work of Christian scribes was of initial importance in copying early Christian writings, particularly the stories about Jesus. And then finally, the last category that we encounter as we are walking through Matthew is this group called the Sanhedrin or the Great Sanhedrin. And J.A. Thompson says this, another New Testament scholar. In the New Testament times, the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem compromised the high priests, the acting high priests, and those who had been high priests, members of the privileged family from which the high priests were taken, the elders, tribal, and family heads of the people of the priesthood, the scribes, the legal experts, and the whole and many of the Sadducees and Pharisees were part of this great Sanhedrin, this council. And Jesus stands before this group, before his trial. Um, before his crucifixion. And Paul also stands trial before this group in Acts. So you got it? So there's, there's, there's kind of four groups. Some, there's basically the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then you have these guys who are scribes, who some of them are actually Pharisees. And then you have this great council of people. And then you have the Romans overseeing all this. And you have Herod, who's a king, who's kind of working for the Romans and supposed to be the Jewish king. He's kind of a puppet king. So this is the world that Jesus enters into. Now, why is Jesus so angry with the Pharisees in this account? Uh, But before we look at that, let's just look at what's happening. So in Matthew, there's what they call like there's five discourses. There's the Sermon on the Mount. There's the commissioning of the disciples in chapter 10. There's the parables of the kingdom in chapter 13. There's the material on what it means to live in community and obedience to Jesus' teaching in chapter 18. Then there's this final discourse, which some scholars say actually start in 23, what we read this morning. Some say that 23 is kind of like a subsection, and then it's, it's actually 24 and 25. Um, and these, this looks ahead to the future warning of what is to come. Jesus actually tells them that the Jerusalem will be destroyed. Uh, so be ready, because I'm, the, I'm here. Before the temple's destroyed, it's okay, because the true temple is here, and then he, he, we're, we as the church become the temple. In chapter 21, which we skipped, Jesus enters Jerusalem, the triumphant entry, and actually we're going to, Lawrence will preach on this on Palm Sunday. Then Jesus clears the temple, he curses the fig tree, the authorities question the authority of Jesus. Jesus gives the parable of the two sons and the parable of the evil tenant farmer, and that's when the Pharisees want to kill him, but the crowds think he's a prophet, in chapter 22, Jesus gives the parable of the great feast. He talks about paying taxes to Caesar. There's discussion about resurrection with the Sadducees, and he actually shuts them down. Because, again, like I said earlier, they didn't believe in a resurrection, and he's trying to change their teaching in preparation for his resurrection. Then Jesus gives the great commandment, and he says, you must love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He says this in reply to the Pharisees after they know that he's already silenced the Sadducees they try to trap him with a a question about the law he says love the Lord God with all your heart your soul and mind this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is equally important love your neighbor as yourself the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments then Jesus goes into they try to trick him again and they say whose son is the Messiah And and Jesus answers By a psalm of David, and he silences them. And then we get to the account where we're at right now. So, why is Jesus so angry with them? In Matthew 23 1 through 12, the first part of the section Erica read this morning, there are five characteristics for which uh, the Pharisees were rebuked. The first one, they do not practice what they preach. This is in verse 3. Secondly, they are unwilling to undertake themselves what they prescribe for others. Thirdly, they love to show off. Fourthly, they revel they, in honorific titles and being paid respect. Instead of giving the glory to God, they like the respect. They actually, enjoy, it, it's, it's part of who they are. And finally, they misunderstood, they misunderstand servant ministry. They should have read Deuteronomy and the prophets. They should have known what the scrolls of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel proclaim from beginning to end about the servant. What it means to be a leader. What it means to be God's people. In Isaiah 57, it says, "The high and lofty ones who live in, um, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one. This is God, Yahweh. Says this, I live in high and holy." in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. The Pharisees probably had this passage memorized. I restored the crushed spirit of the humble and re- revived the courage of those with repentant hearts. See how Jesus is just saying, you, you guys, you had the law of Moses and you had the, the prophets and you missed it. In Isaiah 66 too, it says, has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being, declares the Lord, These are not the ones I look favor on. I look on with favor. These sorry, these are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. This is pretty much the opposite of the Pharisees. In Ezekiel 21, it says this: "O you corrupt and wicked prince of Israel, your final days of reckoning is, your final day of reckoning is here. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Take off your jeweled crown for the old order changes. Now the lowly will be exalted and the mighty will be brought down. Destruction, destruction. I will surely destroy the kingdom and it will not be restored until the one appears who has the right to judge it. Then I will hand it over to him. This is Jesus. So right All these prophecies are being fulfilled right before their very eyes, and they miss it. Interesting thing, Mary gets it. You know Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, after she hears that she would be the mother of the Messiah, she says that he has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. Mary got it. Joseph got it. The Pharisees missed it. Going back to the Matthew 23 passage, Jesus says, but you are not to be called rabbi. And he's not saying that it's bad for a leader to be called a leader. He says, for you have one teacher. He's saying you're not to be called rabbi in the sense of how they wanted to be called. They wanted the the title that was only bestowed to God. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. He's saying, "Remember Genesis one. We're we're all made in the image of God. No nobody is higher than the other." And he says, "And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to call, nor are you to be called instructor, instructors. For you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant." This is Isaiah. Jesus doesn't just come up with the stuff on the spot. They should have they should have seen this. This is from the beginning of the end of of the Old Testament, of the, the stuff that they had memorized, the stuff that they put on their forehead and on their arm. They missed it. Jesus came to build his kingdom, a kingdom where the greatest among you will be your servant. And the Pharisees don't want to join with Jesus. They like their present kingdom a kingdom that serves their needs. Most of them were wealthy and their interests. And it was at the expense of others. Their hearts were hard and Jesus is exposing them because they need to repent and turn back to God. They think they're the prophets. They think they're Isaiah, but actually they need to be listening to Isaiah. John the Baptist comes and they kill him. The very people that they think they are is the ones that, they, that they're not. They're leading the people astray. And this is why Jesus is so angry, I believe. One of the woes is he's like, you bring these people in and you, you make them more sons of hell than you are. Jesus says that. Why? Because he's warning them, don't do this. The things you say you do, you're not doing. You're living for yourself. Live for me and my kingdom. All right, so I've created the problem. I've created the dilemma. What can we learn from Jesus' teaching here and his strong rebuke of the Pharisees? So there's after the five rebukes we saw in verses 1 through 12, that's kind of the soft part. Then Jesus really lays into them with seven woes. At this point of the sermon, I'm supposed to tell a funny story or a joke or something, but where we are in the passage, there's not a lot of jokes or anything, so I, don't, I can't really bring up a funny joke about woes or something, so I'll just try to make you laugh by acknowledging that I can't make a joke here. Uh, yeah, Jesus lays into them seven woes between verses 13 and 37. So what's a woe? Woe you know, wasn't there an 80s, 90s show where the guy's like, whoa, I forgot. Um, what's a woe? It's nothing like that woe. It could also be, it, it probably is more like a curse, a stern warning. It's basically the opposite of a blessing. The New Living Translation always translates the word in the New and the Old Testament. What sorrow awaits. Actually, woes were a funeral lament, a mix of music and liter- literary convention for mourning the dead. The word is hoy, hoy in Hebrew or uai in Greek. Kind of the sound you make when you're moaning or groaning. I've lived in multiple cultures, and it is kind of funny how different cultures have different sounds. Um, Even sounds for animals. Like, you know, I live, and it's funny because we, you know, we say this, they say that, the duck says this. But sounds for crying out, sounds for. That's what a woe is. It's like, this is bad. There are 51 woes pronounced in the Old Testament. And all 51 are pronounced by prophets pleading and warning people, mostly the leaders, what will happen if they don't repent and turn back to God. Isaiah contains 21 of these woes alone, including the two that we heard this morning in the scripture reading. So here is Jesus, like Moses, like Elijah, like Isaiah, like John the Baptist, warning the religious elite to honor God and not themselves and turn back to God and quit neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I'm not going to analyze each seven woes. I mean, you can find books where like this woe means the church needs to do this and this woe means to be the church needs to do that. And sometimes they align and sometimes they're a little different, and that's okay, you know. These are here for us The scripture is going to continually teach us through the word and we can analyze Jesus teaching and and use it to encourage us and to to move forward as his people. So I'm not going to analyze them one by one, but I want to focus on the two categories of charges that Jesus brings against them. Hypocrisy. And spiritual blindness. Jesus says in verse 23, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites you give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And this is probably directly from the Micah passage of what God requires. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So honoring God is not a bad thing, but if you do it, like Paul says, without love, it's worthless. If you do it without mercy, it's worthless. It's worthless. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Anybody uh, grow up in like South Georgia or Florida or in Central Florida? One time I went, here we go. It, it's the gnat world. There's actually a gnat line. Actually, I think Raleigh's kind of on the gnat line. It's, it's a fault line and it's, it's kind of, it's, it's not official, but it's official. South of the gnat line, like Macon, Georgia. You go south of Macon, Georgia, and there's just gnats everywhere. I remember one time I was riding my bike And I have, you know, those mesh hats, like the, they call them truckers hats or whatever. I was riding my bike and the gnats were so bad. This is a true story. I like made like a filter for my face so that the gnats, these little tiny bugs wouldn't come in my mouth. So Jesus is using this example. He's like, you'll literally strain out this tiny little thing, but you'll swallow a camel. You're missing it that much. Jesus calls them blind five times. New Testament scholar Michael Green says this about Jesus calling them blind. They do not understand the important things in God's revelation. They do not go for inner purity, but rest content with externals. They are faultless in their ceremonial observances. They look good in the way their ceremonial observances. But the primary matters for which the prophets had stressed, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, were in short, Supply. This is what it means to say that they're blind. They're just spiritually blind. They're missing it. In addition to calling them blind five times, Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites six times in this pronouncement against them. So we know that Jesus is really angry with their spiritual blindness and their hypocrisy. We know that they were reading the Bible every day, or at least they were telling us they were, and they were utterly hypocrites and completely spiritually blind. They say they know and they love the words of Moses and the prophets. They even built monuments to the prophets. Jesus talks about this in the passage. Yet God sends a prophet like John the Baptist and they kill him. They want him killed. And then a new and better Moses, a new and better prophet is standing before him them. And they want him killed. So how do we not be like them? You know, I don't want to be a fair seat because they're not fair, you see. How do we not be like them? I think there's two layers to this issue. The first layer is the layer with sin and issues that you're aware of. And the second layer contains sin and issues that you're not aware of. So... Think about it like this. So dealing with this first layer is straightforward. You know you're doing something. You know you're not supposed to do it. You're hiding it. You need to deal with it. You need to confess it. Bring it to the light. Repent. Confess. Confess your sin. Have accountability in your life. Have people in your life that you can share your sins with. The church should be a safe place. The church is a hospital. It's where when, we, when we're sick, we come and we get well. It's not a place where everybody's perfect and we just avoid it. We, we say, I'm not sick. I don't need to go. The church should be a place where we're continually confessing sin. We're continually, like, before it gets too bad, before we come a complete hypocrite, we come to this table once a month. We were even doing it two times a month before COVID to, as, a, as a chance, a reminder to, to, to bring our sins before God. And if, if your sin is deep, get help now. Admit it. Stop it before it gets too bad. We don't want to be hypocrites. And God has made a way where we don't have to be. Before you become spiritually blind and a hypocrite, no more lies to yourself and to others. This is what it means to be the local church. We exhort one another. We speak the truth to one another. We confess our faults to one another. We pray for one another. We stir each other up. We love one another. We can do this. So if you're at that first layer and you don't want to be a hypocrite, the best thing to do is just stop, confess, and ask God, accept his grace, accept his forgiveness, and really set yourself up to move forward in his grace. Now, yes, there's going to be sins, sins of pride, sins of, of lust that, you know, we're, it could be your whole life you struggle with these things. That's okay. God is with us our whole life. He's not leaving us. It's not like, oh, you struggle, you're out. His mercy and his grace is new every morning. He, we come to this table to accept his grace. So that's, that's the first layer. So my advice for myself and for all of us, especially me as a leader, is let's, let's eliminate it. God has made a way for us to do that. And if you need to confess something, you can talk to someone close to you. You can talk with one of the pastors or elders or one of our female staff. Do it now. We're here. We love you. We want you to, to restore you, just like we talked about in the passage that Lawrence actually preached on last week. But now I want to talk about layer two, the sins and the issues that you may that we're not aware of. And you may not be aware of them because you blind, you're blind and callous to them because you, just, you, didn't, you let level one stuff turn into layer one stuff turn into layer two stuff. But it could also just be blind spots that you're unaware of. I mean, Peter missed Jesus, you know, James and John thought that he was going to create an earthly kingdom. They were with him and they missed it. You know? So it's it's okay. Like we're going to have blind spots. We're going to miss some things. But you could also be in this layer too because your zeal in your zeal to honor God, you create a system to, to, to do good for God and then you make the system the idol and you worship the system and you become selfish and all your energy is to protect the system and you can easily miss the very heart of the good news of Jesus and the new kingdom that he called you to that you originally were zealous for. At this point, some of you might be asking the question, okay, Danny, so how do you know if, you're, if you are the unjust hypocrite Or the just prophetic voice calling out the unjust hypocrite. Does that make sense? I think this is like the dilemma of our society. Everyone thinks they're the unjust, that they're the prophetic voice calling out the unjust hypocrite. But oftentimes that might turn you into the unjust hypocrite. Oftentimes the zealous person gets focused on the zeal and loses focus on the heart of the good news of Jesus. And the heart of Jesus himself this is especially hard if you have any type of leadership or authority because keeping power and control becomes the focus of your zeal and we forget about justice mercy and faithfulness we forget about the heart of Christ the line is very thin and only Jesus did it perfectly so what's the solution The solution to hypocrisy is humility. Christ-like humility. The Beatitudes proclaim. When Jesus, the new Moses, comes, Matthew wants it to be clear. This is how he starts his teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. When they ask Jesus, sum up the Old Testament, he says, Love God and love your neighbor. So Christ-like humility, that's the answer to the the problem. That's the answer to hypocrisy. Consistently check and see if the fruit of the spirit is evident in all areas of your life. It's a good test. You can also look to Romans twelve through sixteen. I think, in the, in the letter of James. I think those are two concrete examples where an early church leader is showing the congregation how to live it out in community. Both beautiful places filled with how to deal with the tension. They show us a model for how we can live this out personally but also corporately as a local church. We will all fail. No one will be perfect in justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Only Jesus can do this and did this but in his grace we can live out and be his church we will all fail but we can all be humble and we can all consistently check our hearts we all know a time when a leader in the church was humble, merciful and gracious can you imagine that time but we can also recall a time when someone in the church was not humble, not merciful or not gracious I mean, all of us, if you've been in the church just for a little while, you've probably experienced both of these. You might have been the person. And God forgives you if you were that person. I will, I've been that person. They're, these are complicated issues sometimes. Like I said, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were fighting. I mean, this is, when you get a bunch of people together and you're trying to say, what does God want us to do? There's going to be complexities. There's going to be tension. Our nation is you know, a little over 200 years old and we're still fighting over the Constitution. What is the original meaning? What about this and that? You know, this line, that line. When you bring people together, there's going to be tension. So we have to come up with a solution. I believe the solution is Christ-like humility. I mean, like Eddie mentioned earlier, I've heard tons of arguments about whether kids should be back in school or not. I mean, literally... I have people who are saying the Christian thing to do, the only thing to do is to put kids back in school, and then the other side says the only thing to do is to keep the course with the quarantine. Both of these are the Christian thing to do. And both groups, if if the argument gets heated enough, end up calling the other side hypocrites, or at worst, Pharisees. Sometimes it's not going to be black and white, but Jesus is black and white. We can turn to him. I wish I could give you just a straight solution this morning, but I can't. But I can point to a new kingdom that Jesus came to build, a kingdom of justice and mercy and faithfulness. I'm going to end with this. So at the end of the section, Jesus, this is a a whole section on Jesus' righteous anger at the leaders who are leading the people astray. But it's also a warning. It's a warning that either judgment or mercy is coming. And if you notice, when we talked about Isaiah, that's how we presented Isaiah. Jesus is like, you can either take the judgment or you can take the mercy. Every time he's like, don't oh, turn back to me. Accept my mercy. In Isaiah 31, it says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots, and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. The Lord of heaven's armies will hover over Jerusalem and protect it like a bird. So see the contrast? There's the judgment, those who trust in horses, or there's the ones who trust in this Lord of heaven's armies, this Lord of hosts who will protect the city like a bird protecting its nest. He will defend and save the city. He will pass over it and rescue it. And then looking at Jesus' words. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And in the passage Erica read earlier, the Ariel Ariel is a, another term for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children as a hen gathers chicks under her wing. You see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's bringing in the Old Testament analogy. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate. So he's giving them a choice. They can live in the desolate house, He says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a quote from Psalm 18. This is the quote that the people people cry this quote when Jesus enters Jerusalem. This is the last week of his life Jesus is making these proclamations. The Pharisees want to kill him and the people honor Jesus as he enters the city. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is offering them their mercy. And here's the good news. Not all the Pharisees or Sadducees rejected Jesus. In Luke 23, we hear about a man named Joseph, a member of the council, rich guy, high up, probably a Sadducee, a good and upright man. He goes against the decision of the council. And it says in Luke, he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he saw Jesus and he knew he was there. He accepted his mercy. He's like, he is it. And then in John, I love this. In John 19, it says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea, the Sadducee that I've talked about, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. Now, at the time of the writing of John, he's not secret anymore. After the church, after the resurrection, Joseph is boldly allowing his name to be attached to this. But at the time of of the uh, crucifixion, it says you know he's a disciple of Jesus but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders with Pilate's permission he came and took the body away he was accompanied by Nicodemus a Pharisee the man who this is John 3 you know the famous John 3:16 passage it's it's linked to this account with Nicodemus he was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night Nicodemus had brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. So John, I think John's intentional here. He's like the elite, the wealthy. The ones who literally killed, their people killed Jesus are also taking their money and their wealth and breaking all kinds of Jewish laws and literally wrapping the body of someone who was cursed and hung on a tree Because Jesus says, those who have ears hear. And they heard it. So all I can tell you is, it's tough. It's easy for us to sit on one side and accuse the other sides of being Pharisees. It's easier for us to become a Pharisee in some areas, but be doing great in other areas. We could be jamming and we're not prideful at all, but then we become a Pharisee in this area. The the solution to our problem is to look to Jesus And to say, God, you've given us this community. You've given us this body. How can we live with you together? How can we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Let's pray. Well, Father, you gave us your word. You are good. Show us how to live this out. Show us how to be a people who just love each other. We're filled with mercy and justice and faithfulness. We want to stand for truth. We want to be zealous for the gospel. But we also want to heed your warnings that we will become prideful and we will make idols. God, show us how to live in this tension. Show us how to be your body. And when we do spot a Pharisee and someone is hurting the body, God, show us how to, in love and humility, address it and, and move forward. God, we need your grace this Waypoint Church. We need your grace to love each other. May we be your people, God. Show us what that looks like. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.